Chapter Nine of Walpole by John Morley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Fiscal Policy. When historians blame Walpole for not attempting reforms, they lose sight of a leading chapter in his policy. They omit his vigorous and fruitful efforts in the field of trade and commerce, which was then of far greater national importance than any merely political or parliamentary changes. His biographer is in the right when he complains that men have thought too exclusively of the minister's triple alliances, quadruple alliances, and foreign treaties, have made too much of the charges of ambition and corruption brought against him by unbridled faction, and have left those salutary regulations which ought to render the name of Walpole dear to every Englishman to be principally confined to the books of rates and taxes. Footnote. Cox. Chapter 22. End footnote. Walpole opened this chapter in what was, for the time, a remarkable proposition. In 1721, the King's Speech contained a paragraph foreshadowing reforms, compared with which bills for abolishing places or shortening parliaments were but as flies on the legislative wheel. Quote, we should be extremely wanting to ourselves, the king was made to say, if we neglected to improve the favorable opportunity given us of extending our commerce upon which the riches and grandeur of this nation chiefly depend. It is very obvious that nothing could more conduce to the obtaining so public a good than to make the exportation of our own manufacturers and the importation of the commodities used in the manufacturing of them as practicable and as easy as may be. End quote. Harley and Bolingbroke had made an ineffectual opening in the direction of free trade in the abortive treaty of commerce with France at the time of Utrecht. Footnote. It has been pointed out that Arthur Moore, a commissioner of plantations, who was the real author of Bolingbroke's commercial treaty with France, had become, on Bolingbroke's return in 1725, a close ally of Walpole. Mr. Harrop's Bolingbroke, pages 149 and 245, and footnote. And to that extent, Lord Beaconsfield was justified in a favorite contention of his, Responsible Days, that peace and free trade were the original property of Tory statesmen. But the royal speech of 1721 is the first full, general, and distinct approach so far as I know, made by an English statesman toward those enlightened views of trade which were, fifty-five years later, given in systematic shape to the world by the genius of Adam Smith. Walpole was as good as his word. He persuaded Parliament, in the session of 1721, to remove duties on export from 106 articles of British manufacture and duties on import from 38 articles of raw material. Nine years later, 1730, he conferred a more indisputable boon on the trade with Georgia and Carolina. The narrow policy of those times restricted the colonies to an exclusive intercourse with the mother country. Walpole passed an act allowing the Carolina and Georgian planters to export their rice direct to any port in Europe south of Finisterre provided they sent it in British ships manned by British sailors. The result was 
that the rice of the American plantations beat the rice of Egypt and northern Italy out of the markets of Europe. Shortly before his fall, he carried a measure for allowing the West Indian traders to export sugar direct to foreign countries, provided it were in British bottoms, without first landing it in British ports. The growth of colonial trade was one of the most striking facts of Walpole's time. A dozen years before he went to the Treasury, the whole trade with the plantations, about 1.3 million pounds, both export and import, was only a few thousand pounds more under the head of export, and it was a third less in import than that which was carried on with Jamaica alone. Five and twenty years after Walpole left the Treasury. In the same interval, the total export trade with England, with all the world, had risen from six million pounds a year to more than twelve millions. Footnote. Burke's Observations on Present State of the Nation. End footnote. These were not mere hand-to-mouth expedients, but the outcome of enlightened and comprehensive views. Shortly after the failure of the excise scheme, which I shall have next to describe, a retired deputy governor of Virginia came over to Walpole with a plan for an American tax. Quote, no, said the minister, I have old England set against me, and do you think I will have the new England likewise? End quote. A few years later, 1739, the temptation was renewed. Walpole again repelled it. His object had always been, he said, to encourage colonial commerce, because the greater the prosperity of the colonies, the greater would be their demand for English goods, and that was the true way in which to turn colonies into a source of wealth to a mother country. Walpole was content with seeing that no trouble came from America. He left it to the Duke of Newcastle, and the Duke left it so much to itself that he had a closet full of dispatches from American governors, which had lain unopened for years. This was what Burke described as treating the colonies with salutary neglect, and what caused it to be said that George Grenville lost America because he was foolish enough to read the American despatches. The most famous of all Walpole's projects in taxation, in the sense of being that which made most noise, was the scheme for extending the excise. This gave his enemies their first serious advantage over him, and inflicted on his power the first important check. In itself, the new policy of excise offered no striking or imposing features. The most important element of it, the facility for warehousing imported goods for re-exportation free of duty, had been in operation for many years in Holland. Indeed, it was the minister's object to narrow his design within the smallest possible compass and to present its novelty at the lowest. The bill actually introduced to the House of Commons in 1733 was simply a proposal to turn the customs duty on the importation of tobacco into an excise duty on its consumption. Instead of paying duty or giving bonds on landing the tobacco from Maryland or Virginia on the case of London or Bristol, the merchant was to lodge his hogsheads in warehouses under the control of excise officers, to pay duty only as he took it out for home consumption, and if he took it out not for the home market, 
but for re-exportation abroad. Then he became free of all payments to the revenue whatever. The same system was to be extended to wine. Various advantages were claimed for the change. First, it would put an end to sundry gross frauds upon the revenue from smuggling on an immense scale, down to abuses petty and great, which the ingenuity of dishonest merchants, practicing on discounts, allowances, and drawbacks, and the more primitive rapacity of lightermen, watermen, and gangsmen, devised and boldly carried on at every port on the island. Second, the prevention of these frauds and the decrease of smuggling would be a gain to the honest trader. Third, accompanied as it was by a simplification of rates, this cheaper and easier collection would be such an advantage to the revenue as to enable the Chancellor of the Exchequer to please the country gentleman by taking a shilling off the land tax. Fourth, and much the most important of all, it would tend to make London a free port and by consequence the market of the world. It would be ridiculous in the light of modern experience to waste a single line in vindicating the great policy to which Walpole's tobacco bill was the opening. The author of The Wealth of Nations, footnote, book 5, chapter 2, and footnote, writing more than forty years later, had still to lament that none of Walpole's successors had dared to resume a project which in his case factions politicians and smuggling merchants successfully resisted walpole knew beforehand something of what he had to expect but though walpole was cautious and circumspect he was no craven he knew that his case was thoroughly sound and without having any transcendent opinion of human integrity he had faith in the efficacy of plain reason addressed to solid interests the sacheverell episode and the south sea episode might have taught him the liability of his countrymen to epidemics of unreason and he was now to see one of these epidemics sweep over them with a violence that shook his power to its foundations the bare rumour of his politic design was followed by the fiercest popular outcry that Walpole or any other minister in our history ever encountered. The opposition espied their chance and eagerly seized it. A loud note of alarm was raised from one end of the kingdom to the other. The writers of the craftsmen brought to bear on a project which was not yet before them, and which they neither understood nor intended to understand, all their powers of wit, misrepresentation, and ingenious calumny. No assertion was too wild, no insinuation too incredible, no lie too glaring. Popular ignorance, prejudice, and passion, when once thoroughly roused, are never critical, and any charge was good enough to hurl at, quote, that plan of arbitrary power, that monster the excise, end quote. The proposal to put an excise duty on tobacco and wine became swollen into a general excise, food, clothing, and all the other necessities of life were to be loaded with a crushing tax. Every man's house would be invaded at every hour by the excise officer. Every man's goods and all his dealings would be exposed to minute and ceaseless inquisition. A great standing army of revenue officers would be created who would overturn Magna Carta, 
undermine Parliament and degrade Englishmen as low as the wretched slaves on the other side of the British Channel. The whole country resounded with shouts of no slavery, no excise, no wooden shoes. Are we to sacrifice the Constitution, cried Wyndham, only to prevent a few frauds on the revenue? I had rather beg my bread from door to door, said Sir John Barnard, and see my country flourish, than be the greatest subject in the nation, and see the trade of my country decaying, and the people enslaved and oppressed. Pulteney, with more wit, but no less extravagance, said the minister's fine undertaking put him in mind of Sir Epicure Mammon in The Alchemist, who was promised the philosopher's stone, by which he was to get mountains of gold and everything that he could desire, but all ended at last in some little thing for curing the itch. There were few boroughs that did not dispatch positive directions to their members to resist any new excise. The citizens of London, who might have been expected to resist the frenzy, were in as great a ferment as people in obscurer places. They sent a petition with the extraordinary prayer that they might be heard by counsel against the new tax, and it was brought by ten citizens in a train of coaches that reached all the way from Westminster to Temple Bar. The beadle and the summoning officer went round every parish in the city, beating up a mob to waylay members at the doors of Parliament. Even the soldiers took it into their heads that the excise would raise the price of their tobacco, and were declared by their generals to be as ripe for mutiny as the nation for rebellion. The House of Commons kept itself pretty steady. After Walpole had explained and defended his plan, he held his men so well together, considering the vehemence of the cry out of doors, that when the division was taken on the first resolution, it was carried by 266 against 205. As the clamor grew more tremendous, the numbers went down at each of the successive stages of the measure, until at length the majority of 61 on the main question had, on a subsidiary issue, sunk to 17. From the opening of the session until the middle of April, Walpole stood out the storm. What was quite as important, though no less was spared to turn them against him, the king and queen held as firm as the minister. Lord Stair sought an audience of the queen and assured her that Walpole was hated by the army as a peaceman, by the clergy as a Whig, by the city because he only regarded the great moneyed companies, and he was hated by the Scotch because he always showed that he hated them. Unluckily, Stair let fall something about his conscience. Quote, oh, my lord, cried the queen, don't talk to me of conscience. You will make me faint. End quote. She told him that his patriot strain could move her to nothing but laughter, that he only borrowed his politics and his professions from Bolingbroke and Carteret, and that he might, if he thought fit, tell those lords that she had long known them to be two as worthless men of parts as any in the country, and long known them too, both by experience and report, to be two of the greatest liars and knaves in any country. Walpole expressed his readiness to resign at the very first moment, when either the king or the queen should think that such a step would ease their business in Parliament. The queen wondered how he could suppose her to be so mean, cowardly, and ungrateful as to entertain the offer for an instant, and the king declared 
that as the minister had done all that could be done for the honour and service of his master, that master would never forsake him. They would stand or fall together. The king's own best quality was courage, and he admired the same quality in his minister. When Harvey told him of the encounters between Walpole and his enemies in the House of Commons, the king, he says, would often cry out with colour flushing into his cheeks and tears sometimes in his eyes, and with a vehement oath, quote, he is a brave fellow, he has more spirit than any man I ever knew, end quote. The minister, however, was much too wise to suppose that the fidelity of the court was enough to support him against the feeling of the country. He was neither a Strafford nor a North, nor was he constitutional pedant enough to act as if the mere sanction of a majority in Parliament made a measure either expedient or safe. On the night when his majority had fallen to seventeen, he stood for some time after the house was up, leaning against the table, with his hat pulled over his eyes, a few of his friends hanging with melancholy faces around him. He assembled a dozen of them to supper at his house. Quote, this dance, he said, will no further go. I meant well, but in the present inflamed temper of the people, the act could not be carried into execution without an armed force, and there will be an end of the liberty of England if supplies are to be raised by the sword. If, therefore, the resolution is to proceed with the bill, I will instantly request the king's permission to resign, for I will not be the minister to enforce taxes at the expense of blood. End quote. Accordingly, the next day, when the order for the second reading of one of the tobacco bills was read, Walpole got up and, in a dexterous speech, expressed his intention of postponing it for two months. This was understood to mean the abandonment of the scheme. The opposition broke out into triumphant jubilation, and the wilder spirits could not restrain the fierceness of their satisfaction. Every night of these debates, the court of requests, through which members passed on their way to and from the house, had been crowded with an excited throng who cheered and hooted honorable gentlemen as they were known to have supported or opposed the hated excise. On this last night, when victory might have been expected to make them good-humoured, they were more violent than before, greeting every supporter of the ministry with, quote, ironical thanks, hissings, hallooings, and all other insults which it was possible to put upon them without proceeding to blows, end quote. Walpole's friends urged him to go out by another way, fearing that his great bulk would make it hard for him to run the gauntlet of the exasperated rioters without being trampled down. He persisted, however, and the tumult was so violent that but for the succor of Pelham and others of his friends he would hardly have escaped with his life. The abandonment of the bill was the signal for boisterous and universal exaltation that lasted for many days. The event was celebrated as if it had been a great victory over Frenchmen or Spaniards. Men went about with badges in their hats, wearing the very foolish inscription, liberty, property, and no excise. The monument was illuminated, bonfires were lighted, and the rude mob, so well known to us from the ruthless pencil of Hogarth, flung into the flames with triumphant execrations the effigies of Sir Robert Walpole and a fat woman designed for Queen Caroline. At Oxford, the commemoration of victorious folly was spiced with sanguine treason. 
in that famous home of so many bad causes, for three nights together, round the bonfires, gownsmen and townsmen drank openly to the good health of Ormond, Bolingbroke, and King James the Third. The last note of the storm was heard more than twenty years later, when Johnson, in his dictionary, defined excise as, quote, a hateful tax levied upon commodities and adjudged not by common judges of property, but by wretches hired by those to whom excise is paid, end quote. Walpole did not shrink from making the weight of his resentment felt by some of those who held great posts under the crown, and yet had ventured to thwart the first minister of the crown. As Lord Chesterfield was going up the great staircase at St. James, he was summoned by a messenger to the Duke of Grafton, who informed him of the king's command that he should surrender his white staff as Lord Steward. Three other English peers were dismissed from their offices in the household, and three Scotch peers shared the same fate. Even the holders of military commands were as sharply treated as civilians. As a rule, the king strove to retain the affairs of the army in his own hands. If Walpole asked for the smallest commission to oblige a member of Parliament, the king would say, quote, I won't do it. You understand nothing of troops. I will order my army as I think fit. For your scoundrels of the House of Commons, you may do as you please. You know I never interfere or pretend to know anything of them. But this province I will keep to myself, end quote. On the great occasion of the excise, he allowed Walpole to have his way. Two high nobles, Lord Cobham, the colonel of the King's Regiment of Horse, and the Duke of Bolton, colonel of the King's Regiment of Guards, were both summarily deprived of their commands. Walpole is sometimes blamed for these high-handed proceedings. He is accused of dismissing Chesterfield, for instance, because Chesterfield had shown the two intolerable qualities of talent and independence. Such censure is really idle. So far as the civil appointments at any rate are concerned, Walpole only acted on a principle which is now part of the accepted foundation of cabinet government, and without which nobody would today either form a government or expect to be a member of a government. Chesterfield openly grumbled against the excise bills, and privately made his brothers vote against them. He was at the head of the little group of peers who had long wished Walpole ill in secret, and who with many meetings, whisperings, and consultations had persuaded themselves that the hour had come for striking at him. Footnote, Harvey, chapter 8, end footnote. It is true that the bills were dropped, but what minister would have gone on with a colleague who had helped to force him to drop them. It hardly followed that because Walpole abandoned the old practice of cutting off an opponent's head, therefore he was bound to keep him in a cabinet. A weak minister like Pelham would have overlooked any amount of disloyalty, but a strong minister like Chatham or Chatham's son would have acted as Walpole acted. The great moralist, we may notice, was on the side of Thoreau, Dr. Johnson always declared that if he had been minister, he would have done just what Walpole did. Quote, if any man wagged his finger at me, he should be turned out. If you will not oppose, at the risk of losing your place, your opposition cannot be honest. End quote. 
some have argued that walpole was bound to persist in his scheme or to throw up the seals it is a surprise to find a writer who united to literary splendor so much practical common sense as macaulay blaming walpole for consenting in deference to popular opinion to abandon a measure which he thought in principle to be right peel with the instinct of the debater puts a crushing retort into walpole's mouth for macaulay though he admitted the corn law to be against principle had recently eighteen thirty three declared himself for maintaining the corn law simply because the constituencies were divided on the subject quote, i at least peel makes walpole reply tried the measure which i thought right i did not abandon it until success was proved to be hopeless and opposition to be universal but you my accuser when you are in office shrink from even the proposal of what you think right on your own showing you find public opinion not unanimous against your measure but equally divided as to its merits and yet with all justices and half the people on your side you do that without a struggle which you consider it disgraceful for me to have done after the battle and after defeat End quote. footnote lord stanhope's miscellanies eighteen sixty three page eighty End footnote. there is no doubt that walpole could have carried the excise through parliament only four of his men deserted to the enemy and most of those who abstained on minor divisions would have come up to the mark on the main question but the great parliamentary leader knew when it was wise to look beyond the walls of parliament it was the difficulty of executing the act not of passing the act that made him yield he could have passed it but he could not carry it out without tumult and disorder this is in itself a good answer to the contention that he ought to have resigned no minister is bound to resign so long as he commands a parliamentary majority though it may well be held that he is bound to resign or dissolve if he has reason to believe that the majority in parliament does not represent the constituencies sir robert peel resigned in the winter of eighteen forty five because he believed that the repeal of the duties on corn had become a pressing necessity and because he foresaw that he would break up his party if he were to undertake the task walpole's circumstances in seventeen thirty three were quite different he knew that his fiscal policy was a wise policy but it was in no sense a national necessity he knew that the country could be perfectly well governed without an excise on tobacco and that to insist on an excise in the face of strong popular opinion would be a piece of exceedingly bad government finally he knew that his resignation would be a grave mischief both to the king and to the country because it would hand over the public interests to a motley band of ambitious men partly honest tories partly disloyal jacobites partly malcontent whigs who had no common principles who had never shown any capacity for common action and who were now only united by common disappointment and malevolence walpole's handling of the public debt varied with his view of political emergencies and like the excise has exposed him to some censure when he first came to the treasury seventeen seventeen the national debt stood at fifty-four millions bearing an average interest 
of between six and seven per cent walpole produced a plan for reducing the interest and establishing a sinking fund for the redemption of the principal ten years later it appeared that the net result of the operation when taken into account with new debts contracted was a decrease of the debt by little more than two and a half millions walpole professed to adhere to the policy of the sinking fund and he effected a further reduction of interest from five to four per cent his virtue however did not endure much longer for after various minor alienations he boldly proposed in seventeen thirty three to take half a million from the sinking fund for the service of the year and he boldly gave the true reasons for this startling attack upon his own provision he told parliament that if they would not let him have the money in this way he should have to raise the land tax from one to two shillings in the pound and he did not deem it wise thus to increase the burdens that already pressed heavily enough on the landed interest the sinking fund quote, that sacred blessing and the nation's only hope end quote, as some writers called it was again and again invaded in each subsequent year so that by the end of seventeen thirty nine after seventeen years of profound peace the whole sum paid off was no more than eight million three hundred and twenty eight thousand pounds leaving a capital debt just short of forty seven million pounds footnote see wealth of nations book five chapter three and footnote if walpole had been an extravagant minister and had used for excessive expenditure the funds that might have lightened the load on the next generation his action would have been without excuse but no financier was ever more thrifty of the national resources his motive was political and in critical times fiscal maxims will always be rightly qualified and governed by political requirements to bring the hanoverian government into favor with the landed men was as has often been said one of the cardinal points in walpole's whole policy and in every part of it but in laying hands upon the sinking fund or in other words in suspending the payment of debt he was gratifying two other interests as well he pleased the fund holders who did not wish to have their money thrown on their hands when they had no other secure investment open he pleased the general taxpayer who is never unwilling to let his masters shift a burden forward on to the shoulders of future generations the same considerations of general policy explain walpole's resistance in seventeen thirty seven to a proposal made by sir john bernard for reducing the interest on the national debt to three per cent and the compulsory redemption of certain annuities existing at a higher rate at first walpole wavered and his final decision against the plan was evidently the result of close observation of public opinion and calculation of the strength of the opposing interests the whole number of persons affected by the proposal was twenty three thousand of those six thousand were executors or trustees for widows and orphans and more than seventeen thousand were proprietors of sums not exceeding one thousand pounds to this large class the reduction of their income by one-fourth would be a serious distress and embarrassment the minister had a stronger reason for not wounding the moneyed interest he foresaw the too probable approach of an early war with spain and he knew how great would be the advantage in that 
emergency of having the men with money to lend in a good humor and of keeping the public faith with the creditors even more punctiliously than strict legality required even those who blame walpole for what they regard as a selfish and timid sacrifice of the real interests of the country to personal convenience admit that the public debt might be viewed as a pillar of the hanoverian government the notion that the pretender if he came into his own again would repudiate a debt contracted to keep him out of his own obviously made every fund holder a zealous partisan of the existing establishment it was in vain that jacobites protested that the spectator's vision of james with a flaming sword in his hand and a sponge in the other was a vile whig calumny footnote see lord stanhope's history of england chapter sixteen page one fifty eight fifth edition and footnote the public creditor pinned his faith on walpole and walpole took care that he should have good grounds for his faith for many years the public conviction was as strong as that of george i that walpole could make gold from nothing and anticipated the later judgment of economic writers that walpole was the greatest commercial minister that this country had ever seen End of chapter 9. Recording by Pamela Nagami.